is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Is it all too little too late now when it comes to trying to stop monkeypox? Top officials in the Biden administration have announced new steps to control the spread. The major part involves boosting vaccine supply and distribution efforts. But is the vaccine enough to slow the spread down? We'll go in depth. The Trump Organization's former chief financial officer could sink the company. A plea deal has him helping the prosecution in a major tax fraud case. And USC and UCLA are big winners in a major new college sports television deal. So, will athletes and regular students see any of that money? Buying a car is expensive enough, then you add everything else to keep it running. New report shows owning a vehicle costs even more. Now we'll talk about why. A man dies after eating an oyster. He got really, really sick. The hidden dangers of raw food. We'll talk about that. And a prized historical possession at the University of Michigan involving Galileo was not what it seemed. We'll look into how so many experts got fooled by the forgery. We start with monkeypox and the new steps by the federal government to try to slow it down. Back with us is Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, welcome back to the show. So uh, the CDC was not doing a very good job. We know that by their own admission when it came to COVID. They really kind of dropped the ball, it seems to many, including themselves, by the way, when it came to monkeypox. Are you satisfied that we are on the right track? They are on the right track now. Well, Charles and Mike, uh, the CDC's director has made public admissions. That's the first step. You've got to define the problem before you can start to solve it. We've had news reports about a whole series of things that she wants to do to get the CDC back in track and to earn again the trust of the American people. Long journeys, first steps, but I think these are solid first steps, and uh, I, I, I wish them well because we need a strong CDC to keep us going uh, from the point of view of public health on a day-to-day basis, as well as when new pandemics strike. What do we know about the supply of vaccines? The, the maker of the main one says they can't keep up with demand. They've admitted that. And there is this plan to start changing the dosage, maybe get more out of those vials, up to five times more. But then if you're not giving the cities the same supply that you were now that you've upped the doses, are we just in the same place that we were a few weeks ago? Well, we just heard today that more vaccine will be coming in very, very shortly. So that's that's good news. Also, spreading the supply out so that everyone possible gets at least one dose. We can give that second dose a little bit later. It's not going to be a magic bullet, but it's the best we can do under the circumstances. There's only one small manufacturer in Denmark and countries all over the world want some of this vaccine. Well, let's talk a little little bit then about the efficacy uh, of this vaccine, because, as you know, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more even in our next uh, segment. But, uh, you know, there were there were great there was great uh, concern about the covid vaccines. You know, people were saying, how well have they been studied? What about the clinical trials? And there were many clinical trials. As you know, I was part of one. So, yeah, the covid vaccines were well studied. But in terms of the monkeypox vaccine, where are the human studies that show the efficacy, the side effects, uh, anything really good about those vaccines. And we have primate studies, right? But what about humans? There are small human studies that show a vaccine effectiveness 
after two doses of about 85% in completely preventing uh, these infections. So it's a good vaccine, but not a great vaccine. And for longer term protection, you really do need that second dose. One dose will give you some protection, but the second dose socks it in and gives you more longer term protection. So everyone who's gotten one dose needs to remember to come back when the vaccine's available for that second dose. Is this outbreak presenting in in curious ways in, in some circumstances? I've seen doctors saying, you know what, you're not always on the lookout for for you know what you see on TV and in the pictures, like the pustules, but it could be like weird pimples on your hand or something, and you think nothing of it, but that could be how you could spread it to somebody. Well, there's no doubt that the vac- uh, that the virus, I'm sorry, the virus is presenting in different ways in the Western world than it did in West Africa. The lesions are frequently less uh, numerous. They're on parts of the body that we didn't expect on the trunk, around the genitalia, and around your backside, which didn't happen in West Africa. And uh, you often don't have the associated swollen lymph glands, and some people are just not as sick as people were in West Africa. So yes, this virus is throwing us some curveballs that deviate from the classical textbook description, and we're learning that as we go along. So last question to you, it's where we began the program with the question, is it too little too late? Is it too late to stop this uh, monkeypox virus from spreading? Well, Charles, that's a debate. Can we really stop this epidemic or have we reached a tipping point where this virus is now introduced in our population? And as with many other diseases that are transmitted through sexual intimacy, we're going to have to learn to cope with kind of on an ongoing basis. Time will tell, but the sooner we can get more vaccine in, the better better chance we'll have. Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine, Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Nearly two million more doses will be headed out for people. Another vaccination site just opened in L.A. County, this time in El Monte. But how effective is the vaccine? We knew a lot about the clinical trials for the COVID vaccines, but not a lot about the real-world effectiveness of the monkeypox vaccine. Dr. Claudia Hoyan is an associate professor at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So as I just said in the intro to you, uh, we know a lot about the COVID trials. They were done with thousands of people. Um, We don't know that much, at least the lay people don't know that much, about uh, the effectiveness, the testing of these monkeypox vaccines. What can you tell us? Um, I can tell you that, uh, you know, as as we continue to develop new vaccines, fortunately, we have a lot of great data um, from vaccines that have preceded them. Um, you know, we know that the smallpox vaccine, which this is also a smallpox vaccine, the Genios vaccine, um, you know, was responsible for effectively stopping the spread of smallpox throughout the world. Um, And the vaccine uh, that's available now that is being released from the national stockpile, the uh, Genius vaccine, again, is uh, we know from those smallpox vaccines and applying it to this one. So in, in my generation of people, 
you know, we got a vaccine and for smallpox and uh, we got pricked in the arm and we might have developed a scar there because there were some lesions. Um, we know that this um, Genios vaccine is even safer um, because um, this vaccine is not a live vaccine as though uh, as the older vaccines were. This is a vaccine that's been attenuated and it can't replicate. So the body will see the material, recognize it as foreign, um, and develop uh, antibodies to it. But it won't um, cause any sort of reaction on the skin like the older smallpox vaccine. So we know that it's even safer than the ones we've used uh, before. And so uh, with that, the, the other reason why we have not been able to have a lot of clinical trials for this vaccine is because um, we have been so successful at eradicating smallpox. Um, since this vaccine is developed, there hasn't been enough, there hasn't been any smallpox around to be able to test it in that setting. And the outbreaks of monkeypox, um, where this has been used, um, aren't large enough to really give us a lot of data. So are we running a big uh, experiment or trial or just kind of real-world data gathering right now? You know it kind of will work for this, but you have to really settle on the effectiveness once we see how it's working, especially if we heard, as we heard in the last segment, that this is presenting a little differently than maybe you'd expect symptomatically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, we, we will be collecting that data I mean, the the very important data that we do know um, from the Genius vaccine is that it gives very good immune levels. Um, And we know, um, even from, you know, what we all learned from COVID, um, that the vaccines for COVID gave very good immune levels, and that translated into being able to protect people um, initially from, you know, the variants um, that uh, that, uh, were early on, um, and then uh, protect people from severe disease uh, later on with the newer variants. But, so but, again, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but, but uh, the the vaccine, the monkeypox vaccine that's now being given out, it, it was designed, was it not, to have one dose per vial. Now they're going to do, mm-hmm. they're going to divide it in fifth, right? So five doses per vial per vial, uh, and then uh, giving it to people in a different way than a, uh, an injection into the arm. So what's the evidence uh, that when you take the vaccine that was designed to be injected into the arm with one dose from one vial will be as effective uh, when you take it in a different way and you divide that dose by five? Yeah, there, there, there is data to, to um, show that giving it intradermally um, with one-fifth of the dose uh, will give you the same uh, level of immunity um, and will give you a protective level of immunity. So um, I think that at this point, um, with the situation uh, that we're in, um, being able to um, pivot and take this that we have um, and apply it to a real-world uh, real situation um, is is probably the best thing that we can do to get as many people vaccinated um, as quickly as possible. Dr. Claudia Hoyan, Associate Professor, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Coming up, owning a car might just be too expensive now. And a historian finds a Galileo forgery, much to the 
disappointment of the university that has owned it for decades. They now have a really good exhibit on forgeries. Yeah, they I do. Mean, if we're looking on the bright side. Yeah. Uh, right now, though, the prosecution is going to gain a witness in New York in the upcoming tax fraud trial against the Trump Organization. The chief financial officer, longtime Alan Weiselberg, has pleaded guilty to evading taxes, cut a deal, agreed to testify against the company. With us is Jim France, president and lead civil trial attorney of the France Law Group. Helped thousands of fire victims in 2017 and 2018 settle with PG&E. That was for $13.5 billion. Uh, thanks for being with us, Jim. So what do you think of, of, of what happened with Weiselberg and Court and what could happen as we move forward? Because I remember the talk when he was first being investigated, and there was some saying, number one, he'll never flip. He's worked for the Trump family for, for years and years. Uh, and then others, oh, this is the biggest fish. This is going to bring everybody down. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. It's hard. It's hard to say. Do you want to speak to the uh, to the actual affidavit right now that was discussed in court today? Yeah, let's do that first. We'll 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 go we'll go um, in we'll roundabout way. Let's let's start there. Okay. So normally they will not uh, unseal an affidavit, but given the public interest in this case, and it is a president, former president of the United States, I think the judge is being fairly careful about this and cautious. So. He wants to be as transparent as he can. However, I've been involved with many, many, many search searches, raids, where I've been the special master, and we never released affidavits, underlying facts, witness statements, or anything to the other side until there's an indictment on a case. And there has been no indictment here. There's only been a grand jury says, yes, you can search. That's it. So I, I will find it. I find it very unlikely that this judge is going to release any pertinent uh, uh, information in the affidavit that shows the, the, the plan of the government and handling the prosecution or specialized witnesses that brought forth information. Yeah, that goes to witness safety concerns. All those details I don't think will be included. They'll be redacted. But th- so I think what you'll get is a affidavit that's primarily redacted. Uh, there may be some nominal things that are that are shared through the uh, unredacted process. But as far as significant information, there's cl- potentially classified documents in there. And I agree with the government that we can't uh, you know, risk those being disclosed, at least at this point. And you don't want to, you know, the government has a right to present their case at some point. They haven't indicted him yet. If they had indicted him already, then of course these things would be transparent. The defense would be allowed to have all of it, most likely, or at least a large part of it that wasn't otherwise classified. Uh, but I, that's where I, that's where I okay. think it's going right now. So now, uh, shifting back to uh, the uh, chief financial, former chief financial officer for the Trump organization, uh, Alan uh, Weisselberg, who pleaded right. guilty today, uh, to uh, really tax fraud, right? That that he was getting all these perks from the company and not reporting them as taxable the apartments, income. the tuition, all that. Yeah, stuff. all all that stuff. And now he's going to apparently testify against the company uh, that does not include the family, by the way, but the company, the Trump Organization, come uh, this this fall. What would the ramifications be for the organization if it is then found guilty of, as it is charged? Uh, in effect, allowing some key executives to to earn tax free income by helping them with all of these these perks. What would a guilty finding against the company actually mean? Well, first of all, I think you need to show control over 
the activities that were allegedly improper, and if they can show that the president was uh, in control and made advisory statements to uh, this tax preparer or anyone else in conjunction with any of these allegedly uh, fraudulent tax uh, claims, then it could come back to Mr. Trump himself and his organization. But you need to show the the causal link there uh, with him controlling it or someone under his control that he's controlling. That's what I think. Jim France, president and lead civil trial attorney, the France Law Group. Jim, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. When it comes to college sports, follow the money. UCLA and USC did that when they were leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. They're going to do that starting in 2024. How much is it going to pay off? A lot. Apparently, the Big Ten just announced a new seven-year media rights deal with Fox, NBC, and CBS that will give the conference more than $1 billion in revenue a year that will be split amongst USC, UCLA, and the other 14 schools. Daniel Durbin is a professor of communication and director of the Institute of Sports, Media, and Society at USC Annenberg. Daniel, thanks for being with us. So what does this mean, if anything, to students at these schools, especially athletic students? Well, uh, this means uh, more money for the athletic programs, more money for facilities for, for working out, more money for travel. Uh, you know, there's there it, it distributes a lot more money throughout the athletic department. Uh, USC has a state of the art uh, uh, building for working out in that just was built less than ten years ago, so it doesn't have necessarily as immediate an impact at USC as it might at a school that was using older facilities. Um, but it is uh, certainly a windfall of profit for, in particular, the athletic department, uh, and uh, to a, a great degree for the athletes who play. Does it mean the pie is bigger for um, students who don't play sports, who just uh, are going to feel the ripple effects? Or is it the university doesn't have to worry so much about the athletic departments anymore because they're going to get that $100 million a year that filters on down to them? <laughs> well, well, you know, $100 million in an athletic department is, is sort of lunch money. Yeah, they'll burn through um, it, yeah. The, uh, the, you know, the universities in the United States are the last true believers in trickle-down economics. Uh, and the money that gets that goes into the athletic department typically stays in the athletic department. They swallowed up in the multi-million dollar contracts for for coaches uh, in use of facilities, as I said, in travel and and other things. And we're not just talking about a head coach who's making uh, millions of dollars a year. You have offensive and defensive coaches in football, line coaches, and and a, a whole slew of other folks who make a lot more money than I do. So you have uh, as this money being largely swallowed up in, in the athletic department itself. Uh, what happens, uh, at least ideally, is number one, if USC gets on more national programming and it has, has a really good year and shows up and gets a lot of eyes, uh, development at the university, and this is typical of all universities, look at the possibility of getting more money from donors because the donors will have an exciting year with the uh, the primary sports program at USC, of course, football, uh, that they, can, they, they will be excited about and hopefully be willing to donate money. Um, and so this is a, you know, the, this is kind of the trickle down effect where in development and other areas, you can reach out to people when you have uh, a USC in a Rose Bowl or a USC in a postseason or USC in a Big Ten, where you have uh, where you have a lot more interest and a lot more excitement about the program. You know, in a lot of things that that have seemingly uh, all upside, there does tend to be sometimes a downside. Is there a downside to this? It doesn't sound like there is. 
Well, I, you know, the the downside would have been staying in the Pac-12 when the Pac-12 was diminishing uh, in terms of prestige, in terms of uh, viewership around the country. So in many respects, the, there's not really a downside for USC and UCLA. And do remember, there's not a downside for the Big Ten at 12 either, because they get to add USC, which has a huge following globally, not just USC followers who love USC, but of course the USC haters will now be watching Big 12 football games in the hope that they can see the Trojans get trounced by Ohio State. <laughs> so this is this is a win all around for all sides, certainly in terms of the, the media coverage and the media money that's going to come in uh, because of it. Do you like how they actually structured the, the programming? I'm seeing people comment. At least I know where to go each time because each network, the three, is each only getting their certain games in a single day part. So you always know where to start in the morning and where to end up at night. Well, that was one of the challenges with uh, the Pac-12 network, uh, where especially if you didn't get the Pac-12 network, you missed a whole bunch of games during the season. And even if you did have it, you know, it was it, it was often conflicting with other things you might want to watch. So, yeah, structuring the deals so that you get uh, you get the largest viewership possible for each game is the smart way to go. And, yeah, it simplifies um, it simplifies finding it for the fans. So in it. But that's obviously, again, the, the point of that is to to generate greater revenue so the fans are are watching in mass. Daniel Durbin, professor of communication and director of the Institute of Sports Media and Society, USC Annenberg. You know, there is hardly a month that goes by, Mike, when I don't curse my car. But what did it do to you? No, nothing. It's just that it did it, it get you here today. It got me here today, See? but at great cost. <laughs> <laughs> When I add it all up, I, I spend just an inordinate amount, inordinate amount of money on my car. We well, get you a little scooter. You could no, I don't sc- want to see. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with the car. But still, a new report from AAA finds the average cost to own and operate a new car in 2022 has uh, soared about 11 percent since last year. That's more than ten thousand seven hundred dollars a year. Dave Skein, approved auto repair manager at the Automobile Club of Southern California, is with us. Dave, thank you. So. Uh, it's getting steep out there. Is this everything plus payments or everything disregarding what you're actually paying to, to have the car? No, this, this study takes into account things like fuel, maintenance, repairs, tire costs, insurance, license, registration, taxes, depreciation, and finance charges when you finance a car. There's our $10,000 And you right see, there. Every, everything that Dave just ticked off is why I curse my car <laughs> every single month. Because if it isn't, if it isn't the lease payments it's the gas if it isn't the gas it's time to renew the reg i I could rant about this forever what do we do about this dave well um on the cost side be careful about which category of vehicle you want to choose when deciding what to buy next there's a big variation in costs based upon what vehicle you pick so a small sedan is going to cost you half the price of a, of a Ford or, you know, a half-ton pickup truck, any of them, not just the one I started to mention. So depending on what you pick makes a big difference. How do we get the insurance prices down? Because some people will go and get a new car, and they're so excited until they call their insurance agent, and they go, well, here's your new quote. Yeah, so, you know, you should do that ahead of time, right? Part of your research should be to narrow down your potential choices to two or three. Once you've narrowed it down to two or three, you should call your insurance company ahead of time and get a quote from them on what it's actually going to cost you to insure those vehicles. And make sure you get a full quote. Don't piecemeal it and don't go cheap because you're trying to save money on insurance. Make sure you have full coverage. Make sure you have the right deductible. Make sure you have the right coverage limits. 
right? All of those things are important, and they, they matter when something when you're in a time of need. But, but here's part of the problem, not part, it's a big problem, I think, with insurance and new cars, is that, you know, a while ago, like a few years ago, they would tell you, you know, if you get a, a newer, better car, insurance sometimes goes down because it's got, you know, seat belts and uh, side airbags and all that other stuff. Then all of a sudden, the insurance rates kept going up. And I asked my agent, I said, why are they going up? I've got like this really safe car with all this cool stuff on it. And she said, because they're now really expensive to fix if you get into an accident. So the rates go skyrocketing. So you can't win. Right. And, and they're expensive to replace if yeah. your car happens to be totaled. I mean, in this study, you know, we looked at 45 different vehicles across nine categories. We took the top five competitors or the top five performers in each of these nine categories. The average price of all of them together is over $33,000. So cars nowadays, right now, cars are, are not cheap. Did you look at electric versus, you know, gas-powered and cost savings versus not? I mean, we know what gas prices are like, but sometimes it costs more to get into an electric car. Yeah, so, you know, I'm going to give you a mixed bag of information. On the good side, um, EV driving costs and ownership costs continue to get lower and continue to get better. And EVs in this study came in in second place in overall cost of ownership. They were still beaten out by small sedans. So that's the good news. EVs are getting better over time, and they're getting more reliable. Costs of ownership are continuing to go down. But the bad news is an EV depreciates at double the rate of a small sedan. So in our study, we looked at depreciation rates, and an EV depreciates at $5,000 a year compared to a small sedan that depreciates at 2500 bucks a year. Why, why is that? Um, you know, there's a lot of factors in there, but, you know, cost of ownership in the long term when that vehicle gets older and, you know, there's not enough cars, EVs on the road yet to have a, a deep enough data set to fully understand. But cost of ownership when they get older go up. As an example, people don't realize that batteries, the propulsion battery in an EV, has a shelf life. It's only good for so long. And once that vehicle gets past the manufacturer's warranty period, we were discussing this morning a father and a daughter that went out and bought a, a used electric vehicle for the daughter. They thought it was a great vehicle. They spent over ten grand on it. They drove it for a couple of months. The battery failed. They brought it to the dealer. It's $14,000 for a new battery, and that's more than they paid for the car. So depreciation is affected by things like that. All right. What? So it's just small sedans if you're trying to, to be as cheap as possible, right? Yes, but, you know, we, we, we rank everything, medium sedans, subcompacts, uh, medium SUVs, full-size trucks. They're all on the website. There's this really slick tool that anybody can use, not just a member. You can use it 24 hours a day. It's AAA.com slash auto repair slash driving costs. Do we also do some of it to ourselves, though? I mean, we still love SUVs and trucks, like, as Americans. Absolutely. I mean, that's the most popular categories of vehicles of SUVs and trucks, hands down. All right, Dave Skane, approved auto repair manager of the Auto Club of Southern California. See, and the problem, too, is that besides being more expensive to fix all these fancy cars with all the equipment, like my car, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it listens to the show. So <laughs> It's by, out there right now. Yeah, by me like now saying nasty things, I'm going to pay for this later. When you're leaving the garage, it's going to slam on those brakes. Absolutely. You're going right. to hit your head. And then I'm going to get billed for it. <laughs> 
This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So lots of people enjoy oysters, but there's a risk in eating them. Man in Florida died after eating a bad oyster at a restaurant. He developed a bacterial infection. The restaurant manager says it was from a one in a billion oyster. Are the odds of getting deathly sick from eating raw food really that rare? Or are the dangers much worse than we realize? Dr. Vanessa Kaufman is director of the Alliance to Stop Foodborne Illness. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, who's right here? The, the manager who says it's a one in a billion bad oyster or people who say, well, maybe the odds aren't that favorable to you? Well, thank you so much for having me. Unfortunately, about 80,000 people in the U.S. develop uh, vibriosis, which is what that gentleman developed and then unfortunately died from um, every year. So it's it's a lot more common than you might think. And how how does an oyster become bad? I mean, well, what's what's the process here? Yeah, so oysters are filter feeders, so they're sucking all that water through their bodies, and unfortunately, it can concentrate the bad bacteria in their tissue, and then you eat it, and you haven't cooked it, and so the pathogens are alive, and they can infect you. And yet, many, many people clearly consume oysters, right, every year in this country, and and certainly in countries uh, uh, around the world. Can you tell in advance, and then we'll get on to some other foods, but can you tell if there's something wrong with your oyster? Well, obviously, if the oyster smells funny or is open, uh, you shouldn't consume it. But pathogens like uh, Vibrio are really dangerous for people who are immunocompromised. So if you're pregnant, um, if you're over 65, and particularly with oysters, if you have liver problems, you probably should avoid eating them raw. Most people, though, who get this would be able to, to get over it just fine? Yeah, most people will be fine. Um, about 100 people die every year in the U.S. from that. Okay, particular so, pathogen. Yeah. so now putting oysters aside, because I don't like oysters anyway, but what other kinds of foods can kill you? <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, anything can probably kill you. There are about 3,000 deaths in the U.S. due to foodborne illness. Um, and we see a lot of these come from uh, things that you would expect, like uh, poultry and um, other raw meats. Uh, but, you know, we've seen big outbreaks with vegetables and raw flour um, and even infant formula. That's been big in the news lately. Is it tough for people, do you think, at least in the early going, when they just think, oh, I picked up like some food poisoning somewhere and, and it'll be fine in a day. I'll wake up tomorrow and it'll all be OK. But then it's like way worse. Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of people who get foodborne illness don't go to the doctor and then it doesn't get reported. And so it's harder for the CDC and other government agencies to track those illnesses, uh, which can lead to a delay in having a recall and tracing those outbreaks. So uh, your director, as we said, of the Alliance to Stop Foodborne Illnesses. So I'm wondering, what is the strategy to stop it? I know for me, I I eat mostly junk food, so I know I'm okay. (laughs) Ultra processed. Yeah, ultra right? processed. No germs. I got everything out of there. Yeah, including no germs the nutrition. Including nutrition, but no germs exist, I guarantee you. But on other food that most people eat, how do you stop foodborne illness? Yeah, so the Alliance is a really wonderful program of the organization Stop Foodborne Illness, and it's bringing together a lot of big companies and uh, 
academics and other subject matter experts to work on big problems and to advance food safety culture within these companies so they prevent pathogens from getting in the food in the first place. Is some of the trouble with some of these outbreaks, we see something gets in there and it's just so mass produced that then it's all over the country, like, you know, in a week? Yeah, so this is a huge problem, and we saw it uh, with peanut butter uh, recently, where, you know, peanut butter is in a lot of foods, right? So if you have an initial recall and people go and they check their pantries and they, you know, throw out the contaminated peanut butter, um, they return it to their stores. But then, you know, days and weeks later, we see other unfortunately processed foods uh, that contain peanut butter be fall subject under the recall. That was aimed at me. Yeah, throw out the butter butters. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Vanessa Kaufman, director of the Alliance to Stop Foodborne Illness. Galileo uh, is one of history's most famous astronomers, maybe the most famous. He found that the Earth and other planets orbit the sun. That got him into a lot of trouble with the Catholic Church. That was in the late 15 and early 1600s. University of Michigan Library had a manuscript related to this major discovery, or at least they, they thought they did. Um, it was a forgery, it turns out. We're going to get into that now. Nick Wilding is a historian at Georgia State University, uncovered evidence suggesting this manuscript was a fake, and Pablo Alvarez, curator of the University of Michigan Library's Special Collections Research Center. Uh, Pablo, thanks for being here. Nick, thank you. Uh, let's start with you, Pablo. Take me through what this thing looks like and, and what you thought you had. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, I mean, this... Um one-page manuscript has been with us at the University of Michigan Library for quite a long time, from 1938. So uh, it was something that uh, I would use for classes, for teaching, exhibits, and uh, we never had any doubts about uh, this document uh, being a forgery or anything like that. So when uh, Nick contacted me uh, back in May, with a set of questions, uh, suspicions about the document, I was uh, very concerned, of course. And then it took uh, a few weeks of, you know, back and forth questions. Uh, his investigation was moving very fast until uh, there was, uh, he found conclusive evidence to uh, demonstrate that the document, uh, this document wasn't really authentic, but it was a forgery. So at that point, I was, of course, deeply sad and disappointed because uh, it was like, you know, somebody, uh, I don't know, when you're a child and somebody tells you Santa Claus doesn't exist or you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, wow. uh, probably probably uh, more dramatic uh, indeed, but yeah, that's okay, very so, much. Okay, so mm -hmm. hold, hold it there for a second, uh, Pablo. And Nick, over to you. What was it that you saw that I guess a whole bunch of other experts, I mean, this document has been viewed, you know, who knows how many times since the, what, 1934, I think Pablo said. I mean, what did you see that nobody else saw that raised suspicions? I just see the obvious. Um, I saw that it was, uh, so the, the document is, as Pablo says, a, a single sheet of paper. The top half is a draft of a letter of Galileo writing to the Doge of Venice saying, Here's a telescope I've just made. Uh, I'm giving it to you. And then there's a line. And then on the bottom half of the sheet of paper, um, there's a series of astronomical observations, little kind of squiggles and stars and circles and stuff, day by day going through um, about eight nights of, of observations. Um, 
when you write something in the 17th century, you don't have a biro or a, a, a fountain pen or a, a laptop to take down your notes. You have a, a quill and ink, and you usually make the ink pretty regularly. You don't buy it commercially. You make it yourself, or um, it's, it's not standardized. So usually when you look at documents that are written over a period of time, the ink changes um, changes color, changes depth of, of brown, and the quill will change as well because it, it wears out. And so the first thing that I realized, I used to think that this thing was, was real. I've, I've quoted from it. I've had no problem with it. And then I just looked at it afresh, and I thought, why does it all look as if it's written in one sitting? That doesn't make any sense. The top half was written in August 1609. We have the actual sent version of this letter in the archives in Venice. The bottom is dated uh, January 1610. Why does it look like it was written in one go? That doesn't. There's an internal inconsistency there. Um, and then I started thinking. I have this habit of just kind of uh, being grinchy and skeptical about documents. So I, I thought, like, um, how do we prove that it's real rather than how do we prove that it's <laughs> fake? And and just everything started to unravel. The the content of it has puzzled historians for quite a long time. They've made all kinds of contortions to make it make sense. They've said that some of the observations are misdated or um, retroactively filled in or stuff like that. The, the stuff that, um, that just doesn't doesn't really make sense. Your anything. spidey sense was tingling. Right. So, so, yeah. so, Nick, uh, so I want to, before we run out of time, I want to get to who actually made this this document, the one that for decades people thought was was done by Galileo in the, what, 1610 or something like that. Uh, you found out, or, uh, or you think you know, who actually did it and why? Yeah, so there was a beautiful paper trail. I mean, with Pablo's help, we, we looked at the... We held, Pablo held the document up to the light, and you can see the marks made in the, in the paper, the watermarks. And using that and a load of evidence of where this thing first came from, we couldn't trace it back before 1934. We managed to trace it to this Italian forger who's really well known um, amongst music specialists, a guy called Tobia Nicotra. He forged hundreds of... Um, like Mozart symphony scores and things like that. But they, when he was finally raided in, in 1934 by the Italian police, they found what they described as a, a forgery workshop and said that there was Galileo material there. So I knew that he'd forged Galileos. And by piecing together fragments of his, his trail, which led to archives in Pisa, in Uppsala in Sweden, um, in... Um, New York, the Morgan Library, and uh, this document in Michigan, we think uh, that our best guess, and I think it's a pretty good guess, is that this guy, Nicotra, um, was also forging pretty high quality, I mean, nobody's suspected this for 100 years now, uh, Galileo documents as well. Huh. There may be more out there too. Uh, Pablo, what are you going to do with this now? Uh, the first question. And then second, because Nick has found some of these forgeries before. When you saw his name on the email, did you get a little bit worried automatically? <laughs> In, indeed, indeed. I mean, I was uh, the combination of the, of his name and Galileo, of course. I I was immediately, you know, thinking, well, there is something wrong with our uh, one uh, page le uh, letter. What we're going to do, I, I, I want to emphasize one thing that uh, I think Nick mentioned as well. 
the cleverness of the forgery, I think, is to create the sensation that uh, this is a draft. So uh, historian scientists uh, uh, have been filling the gaps about things that they, they couldn't uh, understand. So this is very clever because both parts are supposed to be uh, a draft and the actual documents are actually uh, in Italy. What we are going to do, well, uh, from the moment uh, that it was clear this was a forgery, I, I had uh, in my mind uh, the the plan, okay, we have to make it right now and to be very trans, uh, transparent in terms of communicating all this. And I hope that we could also create uh, you know, something like a, some sort of event, symposium, a conference, or even an exhibit uh, to create a sort of a teaching moment or, or, or even you know, further research about you know, this type of uh, forgeries. Um, you're, you're going to try uh, to make you're going to try to make lemonade out of lemons. Is what you're going to try to do, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, since I am not a, a, a native English yeah. speaker, I cannot find the proper hey, uh, Nick, uh, yeah, phrase. But yeah, Nick, b before we, we we let both of you go, uh, what does all this have to do? Because it does have something to do with, if I'm not wrong, mistresses. Oh well, there is that. Yeah. So one of the sources, when when the Cotra got, got busted, one of the sources said that the reason he'd been such a prolific forger was that he was constantly short of money because he had simultaneously seven mistresses around Milan. He's, <laughs> he's an extraordinary guy. He's, um, he also, uh, for a couple of years, pretended to be um, the, an Italian conductor who'd actually died by this point. He was, it was the <laughs> czar's conductor in Russia. And, and he just toured the U.S. pretending to be this guy. So he must have, I mean... He must have been one of these like confidence guys who yeah. just yeah. Um, could charm and 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 sell a manuscript like this, and nobody bothered to ask like, well, where's it been for four hundred years? <laughs> Nick Wilding, historian at Georgia State, Pablo um, Alvarez at the University of Michigan Library. What a, what a fascinating it's a great story. story! It's a great story. More in depth tomorrow.